Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran, ran up to him and greeted him and asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So like this, you know, they didn't have social media, but it's kind of like that moment you, you, know, you get on social media and you realize, oh my gosh, this is a big argument, it's trending, it's confusion, whatever, what's happening here? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, that is, the disciples, O, faithful, o faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd, saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, man, everybody's crying in this story. I don't know if you noticed that. And when crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Circle back with me to verse 18 for your consideration as we go through our topic today. And, it, and whenever it seizes him, this is a father talking, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. I joined this church. I came to Jubilee. I went to the Baptists. I went to the Presbyterians. I went to the Lutherans. I went to the Pentecostals. I jumped around on one foot and circled, and, but they couldn't handle my situation. My life didn't get better. My life got worse. I'm hurting. My family has been hurting for a long, long time. I don't know what kind of show you're running around here, Jesus but it's not working. What do you do when you go to church, but the church doesn't work? I mean, you went to community group, you joined the serving team, you did all the things that they told you to do, but it didn't work. What do you do with your pain? What do you do with your disappointment? And is there any hope? We are going to embark on a four-week journey called Reconstructing Faith, where we will take a compassionate look at deconstruction and we will help each other 
and help the ones that we love pick up the pieces. We're going to come back to the story of Mark 9, but let's chat about deconstruction for a few minutes. What, what are we talking about here? Well, generally speaking, uh, deconstruction is a part of everybody's, it's a part of everybody's normal development as a human being. Um, development psychologists talk about a three-step process. In the early years, uh, you're given by your parents or family of origin a template to construct a worldview. And um, so you build one, and unless you're like a budding Aristotle, your word, worldview tends to be pretty rigid, pretty black and white, self-righteous. Uh, we think we know more than we do. Uh, we lack the capacity to, to, to wrestle with anything that feels... Um, uh, feels unclear, feels gray, there, you know, there's ambiguity. Then deconstruction happens, or, you know, you become a teenager. And so you begin to question everything. Like, wait a minute, what have I been handled? You know, what did my parents give me? And what about this? And what about that? And you begin to doubt and wonder what is good and true and what needs to be challenged. And then reconstruction happens. You go through that phase, and you, you, you kind of take a look at what they did, and, and you, you, know, you move this around and you, you apply the wisdom that they learned and, and the wisdom before that and you reconstruct a worldview that lasts you for the rest of your life. Now, what mature people do is they don't start with a blank slate when they talk about reconstruction. Billion, hey, billions of people have lived before us. They may know a few things and uh, you don't have to start all over. You don't have to destroy your lives to relearn lessons or marriages or bodies. People have made mistakes. But what, you do, what mature people do is they take the mistakes from the past, they adjust, and they, they move on with wisdom, with humility, and confidence. Um, now, people are quick to point out, and we'll talk about this more in other messages, but there's very, very few stage three people walking around this planet. There's a lot of stage one. There's conservative versions of stage one. There's, there's progressive versions of stage one. Stage two people, which we're primarily going to talk about, people wandering around in the desert of modern skepticism, wondering what's really true. So one is that it's, it's a part of like the normal maturation process of the human being. But what we're really going to be addressing here is as it relates to faith. And as it relates to faith, let me just also point out as a way of introduction to the series that there is a good kind of deconstruction and there is a need for it. Every generation needs to go through this. Jesus made a radical critique of the traditions of the day and how they had corrupted biblical truth. I mean, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. You've heard it said this, but I say this. Uh, uh, the prophets did this. The, the prophets came on and like, man, you know, this is wrong and this is wrong. And but this is what this is the way of God. The reformers did this. Um, and what they did is they used scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church. Now, what we see primarily today by Western millennials is uh, they use the world to critique Scripture's authority over the church. The former is the way of Jesus. So you've heard it said, but I say. Um, the latter is the way of Satan. Did God really say? One gets you to question what, uh, what doesn't line up with the Bible, and the other one just gets you to question the Bible or God. Jesus, this is a good thing. Every generation 
needs to address the, the rot and the mold in the walls. And as a Christian, by the way, you shouldn't be afraid of someone questioning the church. I'm not anyway. I mean, Jesus, you know, he says he built his church. And if you build on my foundation, the winds come, storms come, and it's going to hold up. Like if there's rot in the walls, let's get rid of it. There's mold in the walls, let's get rid of it. In fact, if you're like, if you grew up in the church in the 70s, you experience this at this level. Like you, like you, you came to church and like, you know, you hear all these stories about, man, I come to church and like community and experience realness. And it's amazing. Do you remember those stories that we, a second ago? That didn't exist before. You come in and you do, it was very formal and there wasn't friendships. They, they looked at the Bible. They looked at Acts 2.42. They saw the meeting together and they're saying there's mold in our walls. This is not lined up with scripture. There was a kind of deacon where they got rid of that. Or wait a minute, like the enlightenment, that's a big deal in culture. And it seeped into the church, rational thought only. Let's, you know, let's move anything weird out of the church, anything spiritual. And then, well, wait a minute, there's like miracles and, and there's, uh, there's prophecy. There's even speaking in tongues. There's rotten mold. We need to, we need to tear out the mold and we need to, that's good. Jesus did that. Prophets did that. That instinct to see something uh, in the church that, that, that may not be good is, is, is something that is good. And every church needs to go through that. So we might consider, okay, what, may be, what, what are the thoughts of the day that might be infiltrating the church? Individualism, consumerism. How, how are these things affecting us? These are good questions to ask. If there's mold in the house, let's get rid of the mold. But again, there's a bad kind or the kind that you mainly see here that just kind of wanders around in the wasteland of modern skepticism where there's not faith, there's, there's doubt, there's not confidence, there's fear. And if you're going through this, man, I just, uh, we want to be a church where it's okay not to be okay and to wander through this wasteland alone, like come alongside people who have gone through the other side and just say there's an oasis for you, an oasis of God's love and his peace. And, and this is, I mean, you can, you can be honest. It's okay. uh, you, can be, you can have emotions. You can have doubt. There's space for questions. I mean, David, you read the Psalms and he's just lamenting and he thinks about his en enemies and like he, I don't know if you ever saw this before, but like he wanted the enemies of his, the skulls of his enemies to be smashed against a rock. Try saying that in a, well, you know, like go to a community group and say, hey, you know, like I just feel like my boss. I just love to smash his head against a rock. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, but he came through the other side. He came to the other side because he didn't go it alone. And you shouldn't go it alone either. We want to come alongside you. We want to pray with you, weep with you. But I want to talk about this is, there are, there are, there's two sets of reasons, some external reasons and some internal reasons, three of each. And, and it's the axis point of these factors, I think, are why people deconstruct. And we're going to address these over the next few weeks. And so this is a little seminar-ish, but just bear with me. It won't be long. Uh, the external reason. First thing, this is external to you, meaning like this, you didn't do this, this is something that happened to you. E easy believism, or as Bonhoeffer called it, cheap grace culture and a low discipleship culture, which uh, basically more interested in converts than discipleship. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Like, hey, don't be generally Christian, be a disciple. And then you have a second factor, you have ascendant or popular 
uh, secular ideologies. And we'll maybe go into this next week. Or, but there are conservative versions of that and there are progressive versions of that. And they attempt to replace the way of Jesus. And these ideologies are transfused into us through an IV of digital media, our school systems, or pop culture, or marketing departments. And then a third external factor is a breakdown of trust of leaders. Someone that you trusted broke your trust. A leader, a pastor, a parent, someone. It's tragic. External to you. Okay, now there's some internal reasons why this happens. Uh, one, the lack of the fear of God, generation-wide. Just a, a lack of surrender or belief in God's fierce love for them, in God's fierce love for the world. You have a Christianity without a cross. The result is an undisciplined or an undiscipled flesh that's coddled and given free reign versus conquered by the Spirit's power. So you, the Bible talks about this you know, we're, we're not to be, you know, the Spirit's influence on our life is, you know, we're not out of control, we're not in control, we're under control, and we want the Spirit uh, to conquer our flesh, our desires. It's one that lives on bread and alone, but ignores every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is internal. Another one is a mind that's saturated with digital inputs and remains unrenewed by Scripture. So in Romans 12, Paul says, uh, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind has ruts. You don't just have a view, you have a viewpoint. You don't just have a mind, you have a mindset. You have ruts in your thinking. They need to be renewed. Now, the, average, the latest poll, it's about one or two years old, Gallup, um, that among Christian millennials, by, by the way, if you're a millennial, I'm sorry. I'm just, it's just where, like, it, it's just the data that's coming out now. It's about you, and I love you. You're awesome. You're snowflake. You're awesome. And so we, the, but among Christian millennials, consume about three thousand about three thousand hours of digital media a year. I think that works out to maybe eight an hour, eight a day. I don't know. Somebody can do the math later. Uh, but out at 3,000 hours, 50 of it is considered remotely Christian. What you contemplate, you become. What you set your mind. So this is something you can control. This is why this happens. And um, it has a corrosive effect on your faith if your inputs are 20 to 1. Thirdly, and I say this with great compassion, is that you have a wounded heart. Bible, and I say this is an internal one because, you know, there's a lot in the Bible that talks about guarding our hearts. And you have a, a wounded heart. And I don't know anyone who has left the faith, deconverted, deconstructed, whatever you, language you want to use, who isn't at some, who hasn't been at some level hurt or wounded by a church, a Christian leader, or a Christian parent. Um... In all honesty, singleness, loneliness. I've known a few who have deconstructed over the pain of not being able to find a Christian spouse. You have a wounded heart. The father in this story that we read from Mark 9, the father in this story has a wounded heart. 
how does Jesus respond to this father with a wounded heart? First, notice who he addresses. He answered, he spoke to his disciples. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus, the first thing he does is he rebukes the church. I already said this, but in Matthew, he's starting churches. I will build my church and there will be no external force that will have any effect on it. The wind will come, the storms will come. Anything built on me will last. No persecution, no law, no government, nothing external to the church will have an effect on what I'm building. It will last. Not even death will do it. In Matthew, he's opening churches. In Revelation, he's closing churches. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And if you don't do, deal, church, with the mold in the walls, if you don't deal with your hypocrisy, if you won't deal with the culture's influence on you, I will come and remove you myself. I just want you to know if you are mad at a church and you want, you want them to be dealt with, he's got you. He's taking care of it. He will close it down. <laughs> Those of us who don't want it to close down, like, hey, let's deal with the mold, okay? That is another sermon. Leaders, well, leaders. What a, it's a leader that hurt me. It's a James 1. Well, they'll, they'll have a stricter judgment. You may not know that verse, but trust me, I know that verse. I think about that. Haunts me. They didn't tell me that in the interview. Uh, uh, you know, hey, there's a stricter judgment. Don't worry about it. Anyway. A parent hurt me. A friend hurt me. Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Here's what I'm trying to say. Nobody's getting away with anything. Nobody's getting away with anything. You can release that. You can. You really can. You can release that. Now, I realize, I realize if you're in that process of deconstruction, one of the things that I know about you is that you have lost or you have a diminished, a greatly diminished fear of God. And so it may not mean anything, like it says in Hebrews 1031, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of living God. I want you to know that that affects me. People ask me, how are you, do, how are you gonna speak on tough stuff? And like, aren't you worried about what people think? Well, there's somebody's opinion I'm a lot more worried about. Paul says, if I, if I was seeking the approval of men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And I don't say that with contempt for what your opinion is. I'm just saying there's someone else that though humanity could kill me, write mean things about me on social media, it's, it's the Lord who judges. So I'm going to learn to minimize the voice of others. I'm going to learn to minimize my own voice, I'm going to learn to maximize the voice 
But all I'm trying to say is God addresses people who hurt you. He addresses leaders who hurt you. He addresses churches who hurt you. Either they will pay or they will fall upon the mercy of God and receive the payment of Jesus on the cross for them and for you and for the world. Now, if you're here, you're watching online and your main thing about church hurt is you just want the church to burn and you want someone to pay, you want someone to be imprisoned, hurt, you know, maybe just a really bad itch. I don't know, like something. I just want you to know the rest of the sermon isn't going to help you. And if you're watching, I mean, it, it actually could anger you. So, you know, if you got a phone, start playing with it or something or whatever, do, do something else because this is not. But if you do want help, if you do really want the pain to go away and you really want Jesus to help you, I want you to know that he will. You may not like it at first, but if you're willing to go a little deeper, let's get some help. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. This demon wasn't playing. I don't know about you. I try to, when I read stories, put myself in the story. What would I be thinking? Why did he do this? Why did he do that? And I understand, I understand, I understand why the demons would want to mess with the disciples. But these demons, they present, they, they do all this stuff in front of Jesus. It's one thing to get in the octagon with the disciples. It's a whole other ball game to get in an octagon with Jesus. They've done it now. These demons have overplayed their hand. And I can see it now, like I'm just getting all, ooh, this is gonna happen now. And, and, but bless my soul. What does Jesus do? He turns his attention, he turns his head away from the convulsing boy foaming at the mouth and he turns his attention to his dad. He turned his attention away from the pain of the father and he turned his attention to the father. He ignored the pain, in other words, to have a conversation with the father. Reminds me of that the time member, it's hilarious. Just the disciples, are, they're in a boat with Jesus. The storms come, remember that? And Jesus is taking a nap and they're like, we're gonna die. Wake up, Jesus, what are you doing? Wakes up, wipes the sleep out of his eye. What does he say? He said to them, he wakes up, sees where they're at. And he said to them, then he rose and said something to the storm. He first rebuked the disciples. You ready for this? And then he rebuked the storm. Jesus doesn't love me. These people don't love me. Church doesn't love me. Does he know what I've gone through? 
Does he know the pain I'm experiencing? Doesn't he know what's happened to me? If he loved me, he would be dealing with the pain, except we see here he turns his attention away from the pain of the father to have a conversation with the father. If you want to have your pain addressed, I just want you to know before he deals with the pain, you ready for this? He's gonna deal with you. He did it with the, and you're gonna think like he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Doesn't he know we're perishing? That's what the disciples said in the boat. Doesn't he care that we're going to die? Here's something about the devil. The devil is an opportunist and he needs an opportunity. He needs an access. He needs a, he needs a portal. And your pain is an access point for the enemy to work on you and to work on you and to work on you and to work on you. And what does the devil do? He does not make you. Well, this is what he does do. He, he lies to you. He is the accuser of the brethren, it says. And he accuses them all day and all night, over and over and over again. Experts on deliverance ministry talk about double trauma. Wounds are often portals for demonic activity in our life. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. In your hurt, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That word also means opportunity. A base of operations. A portal. How do you do that? Well, just hang on to your hurt. That's how you do that. And so the, and, 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 uh, experts will say, call it a double trauma because you have the original trauma. Something did happen to you. Something happened to you. You were... Uh, assaulted, you were lied about, you were divorced, there was spiritual abuse, or there's something painful and gnarly, and then demonic beings come at your greatest point of vulnerability to plant lies about your identity in Christ, about your value and self-worth, about your, the trustworthiness of God's love and other people. David, in his wrestling, wondering if God was there. I know many of you at times, we've all have at some point, whether we question a little or we just question it all the time. All of us have questioned the love of God. Through David's wrestling in Psalm 56, he said this about God. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. He knows your pain. He knows every tear. None of them have been wasted. He is the God who weeps with you. And then, oh yeah, there's the cross. He bled and died on that cross for you. How valuable are you to him? Well, how valuable is his blood? Because he spilt it for you. So whatever value you'd put on his blood is the value you would put 
on God's love for you. It got through because he, he went from like, you know, what kind of show are you running here, Jesus, to some humility. But if you can do anything, I mean, I, the problem is huge. I, I don't expect much. If you can just like make it a little better here, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible. Now I'm going to have to go just a layer deeper here. Jesus is saying, something happened to you, something external to you. Somebody did something to you. Somebody hurt you. Somebody lied about you. Somebody did something to you. The pain came from outside of you. But the way the pain leaves you is inside you. The if is not on me. If on me, the if is not on me, Jesus says. The if is not on the church. The if isn't on this pastor or this person or this uncle or this aunt or whoever it is, this father, this mother. The if is on you. What I'm trying to say is that you're not powerless. The enemy of your soul would want to form an identity around your life that you are a victim and you are a victim, but there's a difference between being a victim and having the identity of a victim that the only way that this gets better is something outside of me needs to change. I just want you to know, God loves you, God wants to deal with your pain, but before he will deal with your pain, he is going to deal with you. If you're ready for something to change in your life, He's standing right in front of you. And the variable is not external to you, but internal in you. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Can I just say, God can do a lot with a little. He can do, he's not looking for much. He said this, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, a mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. If you just have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move that mountain. I bet you your pain feels like a mountain. If you just have the faith of a, just, just a little bit, because it's not the quantity of our faith, it's the object of our faith. Faith is not dependent upon the person to your left or the person to your right and that person. that I mean, the disciples did not have their eyes on Judas. My, their faith did not depend upon what Judas did. Can you believe what happened to Judas? I can't believe he did that. Well, I guess it's over now. They had their eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Lifting our eyes to see him. He's moving towards you. He's loving you. He wants to heal you. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 12. He's quoting an Old Testament scripture about himself. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You just feel fragile. You feel like, man, i just hanging on by a thread. God wants to come around that with such mercy. He's not looking for. He's just looking for a glance. You glance in his direction. He can work with that. The issue isn't about your pain. The issue is you've taken your eyes off him, it's on the storm, it's on your pain, it's on this person, it's on that person. 
But when you get your eyes on Jesus, if he says, I believe, help my unbelief. What do we need to believe in? My daughter asked me what my favorite verse in the Bible is right now. And it's, the, it's, for, it's by far and away right now, 1 John 4, the whole, all of it. And at first, I didn't know what to make sense of 1 John because in the beginning, it was like talking about testing spirits and he's talking about if you say you love God, you can't love God if you hate your brother, uh, but we need to believe in God, then you can have confidence. You know, just all these disconnected ideas. I thought they're disconnected, but, he, but they're all connected. He starts off and says, Test, not every spirit is from God. Not every voice that you hear is from God, in other words. Well, how do you test if what you're hearing is from God? Well, what is it saying? If it causes you to accuse or hate your brother, that's not God. Because if, 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 you if you're receiving this love from God, you are, it's going out toward other people. So one of the ways that you know that, you're, that all, all the voices that you're hearing is how is it producing love for that person in your life? And then he says, and then he says this. He says, "Here's what you need to you need to. We have come to believe and know that God loves us. That's what he says. I've come to believe the love of God, and that's what that's what Jesus is talking about. You need to believe that I love you." That is the lie in the garden. God doesn't love you. He's not looking out for your best. I know a better way. Oh yeah, you're right. God doesn't love me. I better figure it out on my own. We come to believe that God loves us. And if, if you believe that God loves you, you have confidence in life, it says, and you begin to supernaturally love other people. And here, this is how this plays out. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, I already said this, Jesus went, went about and he's, you know, you've heard this said, but I say, and so he starts talking about some of these old, not God's law, but just, just some traditions. And he says, you know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, um, don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemy. Okay. And then he tells four stories about what that looks like. And the reason why the Old Testament, the Jewish law said that, is that when we get hurt in our pursuit of justice and fairness, we have a tendency to overreact. Testimonies, anyone? You cut me off, I'm gonna like run you off the road. You cheat me of $5, I'm gonna sue you for $5 million. So what, the, what it's saying is like in your, don't take more than an eye. Don't take more than a tooth, limiting it. So it's saying, and then, so in your pursuit of fairness, in your pursuit of justice, limit what you take. Jesus comes along and says, you've heard that said, but here's what I say. I say, love the one who's your enemy. And then he gives four stories and he went out of his way to make sure that everyone understood that these were situations of injustice and not fair. So he says, hey, someone comes along and slaps you on the cheek. Let him slap your other cheek. Unfair, let him slap you. Someone uh, uh, sues you for your shirt, shirt give him your cloak. Uh, someone, a Roman soldier, and we all hate Roman soldiers, right? Roman soldier makes you walk a mile, walk two. That... 
that, you know, that person in your family who, who never says thank you and is always borrowing money and never paying it back, when they ask for more money, loan it to them. Unjust situations. Jesus was saying this. The Old Testament says, in your pursuit of fairness, in your pursuit of fairness, don't overreact with hate. Jesus was saying, in your pursuit of fairness, do overreact with love. Well, how do you do that? Let's say you had $100. Somebody took that $100. It's all that you had. How are you going to live? How are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to? Well, that'd be a big deal. But if you, if you had a billion dollars, let's say, and someone took $100, if you noticed that it was taken, you, you wouldn't care, right? So let me ask you a question. Do you have $100 worth of love or do you have a billion? If you got $100 and someone snubs you, I understand, but if you've got a billion, that's why we, how we can test the spirits. You've been access. You, you, you have the creator of the universe who bled and died for a cross for you and wants to connect you to him. And, and here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am not minimizing your pain, but don't minimize my love for you because my love is much, much greater than your pain. My love, if you believe and know it, you'll move mountains to which maybe you're here today and this is all you can get out. Hey, I believe, but help my unbelief. And he wants to do that. He has the spirit of God wants to flood your soul. So Paul in the midst of, of, of a terrible situation, his advice to the Ephesians was not to change their outer life, but to change their inner life. And he says, I'm praying that you may be filled with the Spirit so that you can comprehend the height, the width, the depth of God's love for you. If God loves you, if God is for you, then who can be against you? What could... What could anyone do to you when we stand? Jesus, we firstly, Jesus, we just we just thank you that for your grace to um, come along by your spirit and, and, and convict us of where we're, we're wrong. And I just wanna say is, would you do that work in our midst, God, that you would help us to see the mold and the, the issues and we'd walk with humility and wisdom and confidence, not in our performance, but your performance. Just be confident to embrace the storms. The storms only get rid of what isn't built on you. We can handle the storms. We can handle the trials. We can handle the... God, I do. I just pray for those who are hurting. 
are those who are trying to walk alongside someone who's hurting. God, there's no doubt that you love us. You bled and died. You came to us in such humility. God, I just, I just want to pray that you would bind the enemy that's blinding the eyes of anyone who's hurting. I pray that your truth, the truth of a, of a, a loving God who did not spare his own son, but gave us everything. Lord, that truth would melt through the, the pain and the hurt. Lord, and just in that fragile little flicker, it seems like it's gonna go out any minute. God, you come alongside and you strengthen that. God, we, we say we believe, but God, help our unbelief.